You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, you can stream our show live weekdays at 9 a.m. Central. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. This is NPR News. We had a show planned about how the party you belong to says so much more about your life. Political scientist Liliana Mason is going to be with us now on Thursday because of the snowstorm in Washington, D.C. She can't get to a studio. So we've asked Ken Rudin to stay with us for the hour. We're going to talk a bit about some of the ideas that Liliana Mason writes about. And then, of course, we'll do the full hour on Thursday. But I'm really interested in what Ken has to say about it as well. Also, we're going to talk about this latest news coming out of Washington. President Trump has recently uh, done an interview with Fox News. And then this morning, he answered some questions from reporters. He's talking about these allegations about his ties to Russia. He's talking about the shutdown. So if you have questions or insights about the daily news going on in Washington. We welcome those this morning. But here's the other question I want you to think about. And this goes to our larger conversation on Thursday. Have you written the president off? Do you keep an open mind that some of what he may be proposing is worthwhile considering? So is your political identity closing any kind of open mind you might have to some some of the things that the president wants to do and some of the things that the Republicans want to do? Or have you struggled to keep an open mind to say, that might be a good proposal, can't go along with that? I want to talk to you this morning about political tribalism. You see what I'm getting to. So think about that. And here's the phone number, 651 and on Twitter at Carrie NPR. Ken Rudin is the host of the Political Junkie podcast. He's with us in D.C. Ken, luckily, we talk to you from your home, right? Isn't that where where we do these chats on Mondays? It's actually, a, it's actually a secret location. I'm really not <laughs> my point I, I like, being, I love, My point being, you didn't have love, to get out in the snowy weather, right? Correct. No, that's correct. But I loved I loved your introduction. Uh, we had a great show planned, but unfortunately, <laughs> we have Ken Rudin for the hour. That's great. That's a good feeling. Oh, Monday. that's right. See, there's always these great shows. First, it's the best of the best <laughs> with Ken Rudin, and then it's a another conversation. But but here's the deal, Ken. I I mean, I I had questions for you about this these ideas that Liliana Mason is writing about. So we can talk about that, but we can also talk about the Daily News. The book argues that our political sorting has become so extreme that it's influencing many other parts of our lives. And and I, I know you've observed that, given how long you've been covering politics in D.C. It is worse than ever. And I think that 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 uh, theory is absolutely true. We not only see it among our political leaders, but we see it among people at parties and people in personal relationships that politics seems to 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 just color everything we do and how we interact with with each other. And it's it's been getting it, it didn't start with Donald Trump. Let's be honest with it. I mean, I think it's been going on for quite some time. I think it, it grew started growing with the proliferation of very opinionated uh, cable news outlets right. where you were either for us or against us, depending on your point of view. 
But it's it's unfortunately becoming worse than ever. Her argument is that even though, and many people resist the idea of this, but we are making decisions about where our kids would go to college, right? Where we might vacation. I mean, even in some of the corners of your life that you think, my politics don't affect that, the research shows that we make decisions about that that flow out of our political identity, that our political identity is consuming many other parts of our lives. Now, she's going to be much more nuanced about that, but that's that's one of the central arguments of this. Does that make I sense know, to you? I, well, it, it, it does in, in the fact that I don't react that way, but I know a lot of people, for example, said, well, I will never vacation in... I mean, I remember back people saying I won't vacation in Florida because of the Anita Bryant anti-gay crusade. I know people who said, I'm not going to go to North Carolina because of you know their views on you know transgender yeah. rights and and bathroom. I mean, it, it's out there. I so it, it's out there. Uh, it's not unusual. It's it's a sad commentary on what how politics have have just like basically overtaken our lives. So in other words, it's not unusual. It's not something I I practice, but I do know that it has affected many people's lives that shouldn't that should have nothing to do with politics. I mean, the uh, the other thing that comes through from this political research in Liliana's book is that it what happens is it obscures any kind of possibility that we would see merit from our political opposites. And this is really important that even if the president proposes something like an infrastructure investment program, right? This is something that a fair number of congressional Democrats have said that they could get on board with. As voters, as people that are deeply invested in our political identities, we are closed off to the possibility because it's really all about winning and not about merit. Uh, Boy, did that ring true. Yeah. I bet you know something. I bet you if I mean I bet you I'm sure there's truth to this that if Barack Obama or Donald Trump said the exact same thing, the reaction from the partisans would be the complete opposite. That's if Barack right. Obama exactly. said it. It would either be great or bad, and same with Trump. So that's the most remarkable and saddest commentary of all. I think. Let me grab a call here from Doug in Frederick, Wisconsin. Hi, Doug. How are you thinking about this? Well, first of all, I completely bailed out on the administration. I mean, it, it seems like any everything they do, again, is partisan politics. But the, the biggest problem is, if you want to look, go back and look at ground zero for where this partisanship started, it's, it's squarely on the shoulders of Newt Gingrich. He really de- de- uh, devised a we must win mm-hmm. and we can't compromise with the other side whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And that's really where it all started. And yep. then it's just gotten worse, and then, then the, the talk radio got involved, and they perpetuated their side of it, which got into the public's eye. Doug, did you happen to hear Newt Gingrich on Morning Edition today? No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, there was an interview with him, uh, and he kind of reinforced, Ken, everything Doug is saying. I mean, he was talking, he was speaking in these terms of winning and losing. If you do this... That's what it means for the other side. And if you're our side, you can't tolerate that, that everything is in terms of winning and losing. 
Well, let me say, first of all, I think it's fair to say, I think Doug makes very good points. And of course, the fact that Doug mentioned talk radio, that played a huge role as well. But let me just say a little nuance here with Newt Gingrich. I think that, you know, the Republican rise to power in the 1994 midterm elections and the and the the rise of Gingrich that was leading up to that. He was elected minority leader in 89. So he was pushing things. I'm sorry, minority whip in 1989 he was leading the republicans out of the out of the wilderness out of the uh, the desert for so long when he was when he was running for speaker or when he was pushing his agenda uh, the democrats had been in power in the house for 40 years and often republicans would never get allowed to to, to uh, offer an amendment let alone have any influence in legislation so there was a lot of frustration among Republicans and some moderate Republicans as well. I think of Bill Frenzel from Minnesota, yeah. who was a great guy, loved Congress, was a believer institution, in the institution, but never got anything done because the Democrats ran the show. So when Newt Gingrich came along and said, look, this is intolerable, there are a lot of moderates, even some liberal Republicans, when they used to be something called liberal Republicans, would come out and say, I agree with Newt. I think he, you know, he's doing the right thing. I think Gingrich has taken it to a taken it to a point where it has gotten where that 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 cancer on our politics really started. I think during those years, but I understand the sentiments in the Republican Party and among conservatives that led up to it. Ken Rudin is with us for the hour. We uh, are talking about some of the ideas that we'll explore further. Uh, on Thursday when Liliana Mason can join us with her book on civil agreement. But I was really interested to hear what Ken has to say about this. And the idea is that our political identities, our political allegiances are consuming many other ways that we see the world and we see issues and many of the ways that we live and the people that we interact with and the idea of who we are. So to that, I'm asking you this morning whether is your political identity so influential that basically you've written President Trump and the GOP off and vice versa? As a Republican, are you looking at anything he does is fine with me every time he rolls back an Obama era administration rule? Good that you're really not analyzing this for merit that it's all about the victory or the loss. 651-227-6000-800-242-2828 on Twitter at Carrie MPR uh, to Russ in Edina. Hi, Russ. How are you thinking about this? Well, I'm a lifelong Democrat, and I'm very frustrated with the Democrats willing us to uh, make a deal. Um, Interesting. sometimes, Sometimes democracy isn't pretty. And I remember when Jesse Ventura was governor, yep. uh, they had a billion-dollar surplus, and the House Republicans wanted tax cuts and permanent tax cuts, and Jesse wanted Jesse checks, and the Senate wanted um, other types of spending. And in the end, um, they decided Jesse got to spend one-third of it, the House got to spend one-third of it, and the Senate got to spend <laughs> one-third of it. Um, it wasn't pretty, but it broke the deadlock. And, um, you know, that's kind of how democracy works. And I think the Democrats should be making a deal, you know, trade um, dreamers, you know, DACA for um, some money for the border wall. Um, 
You know, it okay. shouldn't be viewed as a border wall can never happen. I mean, Obama built lots of them. So did Clinton. So did George W. Bush. Um, I mean, they can yeah, be on this. I, 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 this is interesting, Russ, because can intransigence can is is often in the eye of the beholder. And that's what Russ is kind of putting out, that there is a way to do this so that people save face and walk away with something. But if you're so deeply steeped in your political identity, all you see is why won't that other side make a deal? Intransigence is happening happening on all sides here with the shutdown, isn't it? Well, yes and no. And here's my problem with that. And I understand exactly what Russ is saying. And I, I did smile about the Ventura. Um, uh, uh, a little for me, a little for you. You know, I like, kind of like that deal. But here's the problem. The problem is what Donald Trump says on Monday is not necessarily what he'll say on Tuesday. So, for example, back in December, uh, uh, the, 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 the Trump encouraged the Senate to vote. So basically... It was a unanimous, it was not a voice vote, but it was unanimously passed in the Senate that they would agree to hold off on shutting down the government uh, until February so they can negotiate and work out a deal. Two days later, because of conservative talk radio and the Laura Ingrams of the world who said that you're selling out the Republican conservatives, Trump said, forget about it, I'm shutting down the government, even though the Senate went out of its way. And that's why Mitch McConnell's not involved in this anymore, because he doesn't even know what the Trump, the president, is going to say. If the president says from the beginning that um, I I demand a wall, $5.7 billion for a wall, and that's non-negotiable, which he has said, then, then what? Then, so, if the Democrats cave, if if Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and those guys and gals say, "Okay, we'll give you the wall for this," uh, first of all, their base would erupt, and second of all, Trump has given us so many different kind of rationales about the DACA program and the Dreamers, and said, first he'll say, "Well, I think it's a good trade," and now lately yes. he's been saying, "Well, well, you know, something. Let's wait for the Supreme Court." to rule on DACA, and then we'll talk about negotiating. So the problem is Trump has to negotiate with Trump before the Democrats can understand so, where he really okay, comes so th- out on this issue. Okay, so this is an important point. He is somewhat of an unreliable negotiator. This is part of the reason Ooh, McConnell's what? mad at him. Okay. That's the word I would use. But yeah, here I'm we are someone. where we are, Ken. I mean, now, yes— that's a big deal at the beginning of this, but now we're twenty something days into this. Is isn't it time to also step forward again and say, this time, Mr. President, we're going to trust you on this. You know, we'll give you the twenty five billion we were going to give you the last time we voted on this. Remember that? I mean, Democrats were willing to do that because they were going to yeah. get legislation on the Dreamers. But but at this point, that seems to have been withdrawn, and we're nowhere. Well, look, yes, I understand. I understand the frustration, and I hate the fact that I sound like I'm taking sides here. But but once upon a time, there was a negotiation. Look, there's no re- look. Whatever you think about the wall and, and, and the need for the wall, and I think a, there's a growing number of Americans who do believe that a border wall, border security, is absolutely necessary. But to shut down the government in the fit of peak because because the thing that President Trump has been arguing for from day one, you know, of course, the Mexicans were paying for it and that never happened. And then our Congress has to pay for it and the Democrats don't want to have that. 
for for the president to shut down the government over that, I think Democrats feel that this is just so irrational and wrongheaded. But at your but look look, but you're also making an important point. You sure if the Democrats agreed to okay, we'll give you uh, we'll give you the five point seven billion dollars and uh, and everything will be fine. And then look, yes, we'll probably the government would probably open, and then Democrat partisan Democrats will say, well, once again, Trump wins. So I think oh, well, it is a game of chicken. I think it's yeah. unfortunate, but I, I still feel less sympathy, less sympathy for the Republicans on this one. Uh, but nothing is going to change. Look, right but, now you have like maybe. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say, Ken. But OK, so t- let's take the shutdown, put that to the side. I think my example of infrastructure is a pretty good one. I don't I think there are still if it wasn't Trump proposing the infrastructure investment. You'd hear even more Democrats saying, much as I can't stand the way he behaves day to day, this is a good thing. But the science tells us it's really, I don't want to give him a win. And Washington behaves that way because voters support that. Voters reinforce that. There is absolute truth to that. There is absolute truth that you know that if Schumer or Pelosi or anybody, the House or Senate uh, the Democrats started to say, OK, we'll give in on this, you know, the base would erupt. You know how frustrated right. the base was for yeah. two years when there was no Democratic say at all. Now that the Democrats have the House, now that they feel they have leverage. And if they feel Democrats cave, you know, the Democrats would have a, a fit. Absolutely. I, right. I, I really can't wait to talk to Liliana about some of the tweets I'm getting here. Sarah says, I am a Democrat, but my opinions aren't based on politics. See, everybody says that. They're based on my desire for equity, safety, and security for all. Yes, no one is saying that you don't hold values as high principles here, you know, but what's happening is the way you start to, the way those values are shaped is more and more coming out of your political identity. Here's Relin who says, my politics don't drive my life, but my values drive my life, directions and politics so it can make sense that they are aligned to Russ in Lakeville. Hi, Russ. What do you want to talk Hello. about? Hi. I'm surprised that the media on either side has not examined the cost of the shutdown compared to the $5.7 billion. I think we're, we could light $5.7 billion on fire and open <laughs> up the government and save money compared to whether we build the wall or not. Well, I don't know if we've and, gotten to that yet. I think I heard it's costing $50 million a day. Ken, how to, hang on one second, Russ, because I want you to come back on this. Ken, have you seen the number? I thought I heard I have, that. I have not. I mean, it's obviously, it's, I mean, whatever the numbers are, it's, it's, it pales in comparison to the aggravate, the, uh, the the what's happening to the the eight hundred thousand plus they have families, so we're talking about millions of people who are affected by this. I haven't seen a number, but you know something, there well, is well, a point okay. There before you say, launch it, Ken, hang on a second. I uh, want to come back to Russ. Russ, you were say I I interrupted you when you said we could light it on fire. What what's yeah. your overall point? The overall point is I saw. Um, some statistics on prior uh, shutdowns, and there was one that lasted 15 days and cost uh, $15 billion. And so, you know, it seemed like the break-even point, and this was four years ago, I can't remember exactly, but the point was that it costs money to have a shutdown. You don't save money for the taxpayer. And it's in the billions of dollars. It's not $50 million. 
it, so we probably have already blown by that number. So it, it's just sad because this could go on forever and ever, and the cost could be piling up way beyond $5.7 billion. Yeah. Uh, so, Ken, you were going to say. Well, I know I agree with that completely. I mean, in, 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 if you think of the what, what Washington spends on things, $5.7 billion, I mean, it's it's more it is more than I think that that you and I, uh, Kerry, you and I make in a year combined. <laughs> but at the same time, yeah. in, in, in the scheme of Washington, uh-huh. it's not a big deal. But it goes back to the initial argument that a lot of it is politics. Don't let them have the win. But it's also don't give in to Trump's petulance. And so. Yes. So, if, so if it is costing that much, if it is costing that much. Why isn't Mitch McConnell stepping up with a proposal? But 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 by the so way, concerned... Ken, I have to address yeah, what you said yeah. about this idea of don't give in to Trump's petulance. I know there's some of that, oh, but they are. But no, but this kind of political strategy or whatever it is is not going to change a 71 year old man who got elected, and you know when no one said he. Could, you know what I'm saying. If you no, think you're going to change right. behavior, no, you are not no, going to change behavior. That's correct. So, you know what? Can I just change the subject for one thinking? Yeah. You know, we were talking about people will not vacation in Florida, North Carolina because of politics. I know diehard Red Sox fans who worshipped Kurt Schilling, that pitcher who defeated the Yankees in the World Series. I mean, they loved. Kurt Schilling, until he, they found out he was a conservative Republican. He endorsed <laughs> wow. Bush. And now they hate him. Now they hate him. I mean, this guy, remember, he was, he was during the World Series, he was bleeding through his socks uh, when he was beating the Yankees, when he played for Arizona. And if you hate the Yankees, you love Kurt Schilling. But now that they know he's a conservative Republican, they hate him. I mean, how could you... If, how, the two sacred things in this country are politics and sports. They should not be intermingled. And when you hate players because of whom they support, like just like Tom Brady, the great quarterback, but but you know he is like is a friend of Donald Trump. So people suddenly hate him because he likes Donald Trump. That's Jeez, also part yeah. of that. The political junkie is with us for the hour. <clears throat> Our guest uh, lives in uh, Washington, D.C., and she can't make it to a studio because there's a big snowstorm. How much snow and did so you so unfortunately, we have yeah. Ken. And we are delighted that our oh, wonderful okay, okay. political junkie can Ooh. be with us for the hour. How much snow did you actually get? I mean, what is this, like four inches over in ten, the city? Over what? 10 inches. Oh, over that's nothing. Inches. That's nothing. Well, no, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, asking for sympathy from people in Minnesota, for goodness sakes. But it is, it is, it is pretty intense. It's beautiful, actually, unless you have to be on the road. Right. Yeah. So it's shut the city down. So we'll have a deeper conversation well, specifically about this. Well, you know something that's funny is the city is pretty much shut down with oh, the shutdown. Good it's remarkable. Point. There's nobody on, the, oh, nobody on the roads anyway. Really good point. Yeah. So we're talking to Ken about the daily uh, revelations out of D.C., but we're also talking to him about this larger concept that we'll get into again on Thursday, asking you to weigh in whether no matter where you are on the political spectrum, do you just simply write off the leader of the opposition's party. Okay, so with Obama, nothing he did, nothing he could ever do, nothing he said could ever have merit. And do you see this president the same way? Do you 
Do you keep an open mind that there might be some merit in some of his proposals, or have you basically washed your hands of him? Talk to me about this idea of political identity and how it informs so many other parts of our lives. 651-227-6800-242-2828. On Twitter, at Carrie NPR, uh, a call here from Aaron in St. Cloud. Hi, Aaron. Hi, how are you? Doing well. What, what are you thinking about? Well, I would just like to see, because I'm Captain Average, I... You know, I vote for the person who disgusts me the least when I vote. <laughs> and I would just like to know if anybody's going to come to the middle ever and do work for us, because it seems like the people that are there, they're just bought and paid for. They have more money than they could handle. They have better benefits, and there's no way they understand what it's like to be me. They they aren't working for me. They're elected through an outmoded electoral college that's as relevant today as the steam engine. You know, I mean, Aaron, Aaron this, is, this, is, this is actually quite key to what we're talking about, because, Ken, I said a few minutes ago, they behave in Washington the way voters send them signals to behave. Now, most people are like, oh, get it together, figure out the shutdown. But we are electing people that are more at the edge, right, the activist edge of our political personas. And so they go to Washington and that's how they behave. Yes. And you know something, and I, I and you wonder, I wonder how many people there are like Aaron. I suspect there are a lot because I know a lot of people who voted for Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012 and then voted for Donald Trump in 2016. I don't think of them as Democrats or Republicans, liberals or conservatives. I think people who are just, you know, the Howard Beale, I'm sick and tired of this and I can't stand it anymore. You know, the character from Network. Mm -hmm. And I think there are more and more voters saying, look, I will try anything. And I think Donald Trump's election uh, proves the point that, you know, it wasn't working under Bush. So therefore, we have to vote for Obama. Then it wasn't working under Obama. (laughs) So therefore, we vote for Trump. I think there's a just dissatisfaction out there that the voters will say, look, I'll keep trying something new until something works. Super interesting because the, so the cycle for change is, is basically condensing, right? The, these ideas that I'm going to give it eight years and we'll see what happens. No, the demand for change is shortening, right? And I want to see if I don't like it in four years, now we're going to do something completely different. But it's it's. I don't blame the voters for this. I, I mean, politicians promise things. We know about all the, you know, as, as Sarah Palin said, how's that hopey and changey thing working for you? I mean, I mean, the politicians promise the moon, and sometimes they deliver. More often than not, they don't. And voters have a right to say, well, this is not what I expected. This is not what I voted for, and therefore I'm just going to go the other way and until something works. But. But nothing seems to work. I don't know. I think there's more dissatisfaction. You know, you think of you think of Kennedy and 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 and, and Reagan and people who rallied the countries behind the, the the country behind them. I don't even know if this is possible anymore because there's such anger out there. Yeah, that was our show last week about whether we need the president to set a moral right. compass and. Uh... 
Boy, a lot of a lot of listeners said no. Okay, Ken Rudin with us. We continue with the political junkie. Uh, you'll hear we we've mentioned Newt Gingrich and how he saw this and how he might have be been kind of on the leading edge of that. You'll hear from Newt Gingrich here in just a couple of minutes. Ken, I want to play this cut from Newt Gingrich from this interview this morning on Morning Edition because we had somebody call to say it all goes back to Newt. I think you will hear some of the the roots of this. Let's listen. There are three ways it really changes. One is. Uh, somebody runs a campaign in which they win such a clear public will that the Congress and the president get something done, Reagan in his first two years, for example. The second way things change is you have a, you have a genuine crisis, 9-11. The world was different by the evening of 9-11. And people responded for about a year. I mean, it was a real bipartisan effort, a real wake-up call. The third way you do it is is you have a huge collision. They're engaged in a political dance. Uh, and the reason you have to raise the heat is Reagan used to say that his job was to turn up the light for the American people so they would turn up the heat on Congress. OK, so it's Gingrich talking about how do you change the gridlock? Uh, and these are, in his view, the three things that would break it. What do you think of that analysis? Well, <laughs> um I mean, obviously, there is there is inherent gridlock in in, in government, and and I think you need the kind of activities and the action that Gingrich is talking about to to make any kind of changes. But as he's talking about, you know, the will of the people, I keep thinking about, you know, just let me go back to. I'm sorry to pick on poor Newt Gingrich right now, but let me go back to 1990 when the Democrats still controlled Congress and George. H.W. Bush realized that there was a big deficit mm. and he really had yeah. to make changes, even though he promised, no, uh, you know, read my lips, no new taxes. He decided to give in to the need. We need to cut spending, but also to raise taxes because the deficit was getting out of hand. This was very gutsy of Bush. He knew it would alienate members of his own party. It was and, done for the common for, good, right? That's exactly the yeah. words I was about to say. And Newt Gingrich fought him every step of the way. I had on my show, I had both John Sununu and Alan Simpson, two uh, hmm. strong allies yeah. of President Bush, and both said that Newt Gingrich uh, uh, impeded any kind of good for the American people every step of the way. So so I know Newt has, a, you know, he's a smart guy. He's a he's a great, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a, he loves to think of himself as a as a great intellect, but he can be just as much of an impediment to good government as the as the worst Democrat. Justin says on Twitter, I would be over the moon if there were a serious middle of the road deal making party I could vote for at every level of government. I don't want a win for my side. I want a win for my country. Here's a call from Randall in Minneapolis. Randall, you want to know about these independents, the, the people who are supposedly in the middle? Yeah? That's correct, yes. Why don't we have more independents running? They won't get elected? Ken? Well, no, they won't. That's the problem. I mean, it is so for some reason, well, not for some reason, we can go into the history of it, but ingrained in our political uh, instincts is a two-party system. When you have somebody, just think of like, you know, there was also these regional candidates. There was George Wallace. There was John Anderson. There were people who tried to make a difference, tried to be the middle of the two 
like like John Anderson tried to take the best of the Republicans, best of the Democrats, but it went nowhere. When Ross Perot ran in 1992, he spent 60 million. <laughs> by, by then, that was a, was a record, lot of money. Amount yeah. of money, 60 million dollars, and he got 19 million votes, <laughs> uh, which and also which happened to be 19 percent of the electorate, and that was the most votes, largest, largest percentage of any third party since Teddy Roosevelt back in two, uh, 1912, and he got zero electoral votes. So for all the talk about, I mean, Perot had the money, he had the issues, uh, he he certainly had a personality, but yeah. the fact is, is that, look, look, think of 2016. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were probably the least liked nominees in recent presidential history. So you had uh, you had Jill Stein of the Green Party, you had Gary Johnson of the Libertarian Party. They were offering differences, you know, an alternative, but they went nowhere. So unless, uh, you know, people say, well, if only Colin Powell or Michael Bloomberg or somebody like that, but it just it just doesn't work. It's just not successful, and it's a waste of money, and it's a waste of effort. Just to get on the ballot in 50 states is a Herculean effort that doesn't always succeed. I, I think also what what is difficult is the way you have to, you know, for national office or even for the state legislature or, you know, state government, the way you have to move up through the system really rewards the people who are the hardcore, you know, activists of the party. And, okay, who's going to show up at the party convention in the middle of the summer to nominate, you know, this person for governor? It's the hardcore activists. So our system kind of reinforces this idea that you are going to be deeply entrenched in the values of the party, that you're not going to be someone who says, well, I could take some from the other side. I mean, that's why the, you know, the Jesse Ventura election is so unusual. But take a look at Barack Obama and Donald Trump. Neither of them worked their way up the party. I mean, Joe Biden was in the Senate for 36 years when he was running for president in 2008. Obama was in the Senate for 15 minutes. Yeah, Donald Trump point. never ran for office before, and yet they both fed on the dissatisfaction yeah. among the American people and got them to the nomination. All right. Call here from Bill in Rochester. Hi, Bill. Thanks for waiting. Hello, thanks for taking my call. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, referring to the willing to back down, and I just re- go back to when President Obama was elected and Mitch McConnell's first thing was saying, we're not going to allow him to do anything. Our only job is yeah. to make him a one-term president. That was, yeah. Can I? You know why I think people still remember that? It was such a naked revelation about the way, you know, it was a truth that few people will speak so honestly about what Washington is really all about. There's truth. Look, you know that, you know that Chuck Schumer's goal is to make sure that Donald Trump is a one-term president as as well. But the fact that McConnell said it, (laughs) the fact that McConnell completely ignored uh, Barack Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court. I mean, these are things that people never did or said in the good old days. Well, of course, the good old days were never the good old days, but it seems worse than ever. And I'm listening to what I'm saying as well. The fact that, well, Democrats 
shouldn't give in to this this guy who decided in a fit of pique to shut down the government. But I understand the uh, the, the 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 impatience and the aggravation of so many people saying this is insane. The fact that we're going to fight over this wall while while you know millions of people are struggling. So I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if the answer is, the answer is not a third party. And I, I think the only answer. Well, there's two things. I think the Republican Party is going to have to realize that they need to step up to the plate and say, okay, here is our solution. But right now, Mitch McConnell is saying, I'm not going to do anything because I don't know what Donald yeah. Trump wants to do. And so I'm staying out of it. So that's, I think that's a, that's a part of this equation that is sadly missing. When I, when I read that, I wonder, is he, is he doing anything? Be, I mean, how invested is he really in solving this for the common good? I, you know, it's great to sit back. I was reading all the stories, too. He's just sitting back and watching this unfold. And I understand that from a political strategy. But how about, as you said, stepping up to the plate to say it's gone on long enough. It's hurting a lot of people. What's for the common good? And it's, I, I would think, putting his pressure on Trump letting some other people put their pressure on the Democratic leadership and finishing this is ridiculous. Well, see, yeah, see I, I happen to think highly of Mitch McConnell's political skills. I think he's mm-hmm. smart enough to know that not only is his party taking a beating, but the country is taking a beating. And so uh, ultimately, it wouldn't shock me if he came up with a plan that you know, like a, like an ace in his sleeve said this will this will be the lead to working this out but right okay. now he's not doing it and i don't know anybody who says who is not looking at his or her uh the, the status and the future political future of their party uh before they say anything or do anything okay call here say one thing i know yeah go ahead okay go ahead good i'm just going to say when i woke up saturday morning and i saw that new york times headline uh that said that said um uh, the FBI is investigating Donald Trump as perhaps a, uh, uh, the, the headline was, I'm trying to think what the exact words were. Oh, yeah. FBI investigated if Trump worked for the Russians. Right. I mean, to wake up to a headline saying it, that the FBI is wondering if the president of the United States will work, is working for the Russians against <sighs> American interests, that is just... I think that, 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 that leads to why maybe so many Democrats are just saying, I can't give in to this guy because but, he's... It, but it can, know, yes, but, right, to but, all but, but, that. But, right. but the government right, but, can't grind right. to a halt. Right, right. But I guess it can, so in other words, that's he, where we are. So basically, so, so a Democrat would say, well, okay, he wins again. That's not, I know that's not the way to handle things but but and that's the frustration <laughs> hey, between doing the right thing and the political thing. I have a suggestion for you. I think we're talking to Liliana on um Thursday. Thursday. I think you want to get her on your podcast because I and then you and I could talk about what we take away from that. I will li- absolutely All right, listen. Good. Right. Good. Okay, a call here from Rich in Arden Hills. Hi Rich. Hi. Hi. Thanks for waiting. I know it's been a while. Appreciate it. Oh, no sweat. What do you the want to say? To- the topic is listening. I really enjoy the two of you in your conversations because it seems that the two of you really listen to each other to understand mm. the other person's point of view. Mm-hmm. And so thank you for that. And then the question for the two of you is, 
can you point to some people in public life who actually do seem to listen to each other or to other people to understand and then take benefit and do something from it? Real listening yeah. to understand. Wow. In, are we talking in political life? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. in political leadership, yes. Oh, wow, Ken. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> somebody should write a book called Profiles and Courage, and I think somebody did. But what was great about that Kennedy book was he, he basically took people in history who really, really, and I'm starting to get wistful here, but really did things for the, the, the public good. I think of Southerners in Congress who in, in, in jeopardize their political future by supporting civil rights bills or or or, or or you know things things that that may have disappointed their constituents, but no, it was the right thing for history, the right thing for the country. There are fewer and fewer of those kind of examples today. But but that's a great question. That actually would make a great show for the it would Ken Rudin political okay. Podcast. So <laughs> no, uh, but, all right, so somebody's come to mind. I want to go to women leaders who do this. I think even though. She was forged in democratic politics. I think Barbara Mikulski was someone who could be reasoned with, could could hear an argument from the other side. I don't know, Ken. What do you think? She served in Congress well, for a long time. She probably has a lot she of was votes. The longest serving woman, longest serving woman in the history of Congress, has served in the House and the Senate from Maryland. She also had the reputation of being the worst person in the world to work for. Oh, uh, just saying. Just oh saying, my gosh, just saying. I didn't know but, that. Oh yeah, no, wow. she was she was a, a terror to work for. But you know what? As you were saying that, I was thinking of Barbara Jordan. Ah, of Texas. Okay, and I think of her, her, her calm tones. She was not ranting and raving during the Nixon impeachment when she was on the House Judiciary Committee. She spoke in very soft tones. She had this wonderful, wonderful voice that would just win over the day. And Republicans and and and, and Republicans uh, appreciated her and respected her. Ron Dellums, who died last year, the former uh, fiery black radical congressman from from Berkeley in Oakland uh he uh, who was uh, from uh, you know a congressman from California who improbably rose to become the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee when he was retiring Dem- Republicans stood up and said look I didn't agree with him but he always kept his word and he always listened to what we had to say and so when I think of people like that not because they're both democrats but but both uh, Democrats who won respect from the other side, that's what we're so sorely missing now. You know, I, I, this this is going to sound a little weird, but I would say the first year of Jesse Ventura's term, the first year, and I covered it, I think he truly, I remember him having to make some big decisions on really entrenched issues at the Capitol. And I truly think he went into that wanting with a a receptivity that is unusual in that position, wanting to hear the best arguments from all sides. Now, that all deteriorated as we got deeper into the term. But I think he kind of exhibited the best kind of give me your best shot. I'm going to make a decision that isn't beholden to either side, the one that I think contributes the best way it can to the common good. 
Yes, let the you know, emails come in. My, he was on my he was on my show about a year or two ago, and we talked about that. He said that I mean the reason he didn't run for re-election is well, one, his poll numbers were terrible, but two, he gave he was so disenchanted with the the, the garbage that was coming out of the legislature right. from both parties. But you're absolutely right; he really did believe he could make a difference, uh, and and he it, it, certainly in that first year he tried his hardest. Ken, thank you very much. Really great to have you. I appreciate the time. You just heard a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. To add your voice to the discussion, you can call in at 800-242-2828 or tweet us at NPR. And if you miss us live, you'll find all our shows by subscribing to this podcast. You can send us your questions or comments by emailing talk at npr.org.